We need family courts, don't we? Maybe not. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. The phrase child abuse, when we hear that, it naturally evokes a sense of repulsion. It's something society can't accept. We have a responsibility to do something. Is it like the impossible to resolve old court case of pornography? Well, we, we can't define it, but we know it when we see it. Child abuse, that is. Is there a legitimate, standard, universally accepted definition? Well, it used to be that corporal punishment, physically striking children, was thoroughly accepted and considered appropriate. Now each American adult has a legal responsibility to report instances of child abuse. But it's all so murky, so unclear, and it's, it's too much for mere individuals to define and decide. And it's a good thing we have family courts to objectively resolve such traumatic cases, no? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Our guest today, author and lawyer Jane Spinak, argues in her new book that this mandate to do good was never accomplished, not then and not now, the mandate for family courts. Coming out very soon, the book is provocatively titled The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court brings justice to children and families. Whoa, that is a little provocative. In order to bring needed radical reform, Spinak calls for a complete abolition of this deeply flawed judicial system of family courts. Jane Spinak is our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Jane Spinak is the Edward Ross Arano Clinical Professor of Law Emerita at Columbia Law School, not a bad part of town, where she directed clinical programs in family regulation for 40 years. She also served as the attorney in charge of the Juvenile Rights Division of the Legal Aid Society of New York. I was the founding chair of the board of the Center for Family Representation and co-chaired the Task Force on Family Court, created by the New York County Lawyers Association. Spinnick has received numerous awards for her work on behalf of children and families including being named a human rights hero by the ABA Human Rights Journal in 2005. Well, interesting topic, one that doesn't come up very often. Earlier this summer, I, I ran into an old lawyer friend whom I hadn't seen in a long time. He told me he's now a family court judge, and it keeps him up at night. Part of his job... I bet. Oh, my goodness. I feel so bad for him. Part of his job is to render judgment on separating families. I cannot imagine. But I thought, how else can it be done? How do we get here? Where are we exactly? What can be done? We're going to talk about that. Well, I guess it, it came from what you call a great idea. And I'm always suspicious of great ideas, mm, you know, and implementing them. How did, <laughs> what is this great idea? And how did it lead to the creation of juvenile court, now known as family court, over a century ago, this great idea? Well, the great, what I call the great idea is the creation of the juvenile court, which placed a benevolent judge and some helpers, like probation officers or social workers, who would fix the children and the families who found themselves in the court. There were really two bases for starting the court, the re progressive reformers that began at the turn of the 20th century. One, which we still should consider, is treating children differently than adults right. when they commit crimes. So even today, the Supreme Court, this Supreme Court says that children are different than adults. And that has to be taken into consideration when we bring them to trial, uh, when we wonder what rights they have, and when we sentence them. So I'm not suggesting at all that we shouldn't treat children differently. It is really the other basis for the court that I am most concerned about and that I think has been the greatest failure. And that is 
the need or the want of these reformers to fix families. Mm. The families who they began to fix were the immigrants Mm. who were pouring into the country at the beginning of the 20th century and who had different ways of being. They had different languages. They had different clothing and and culture and language and interests. And the American reformers were concerned that these particularly impoverished immigrants needed to be turned into proper Americans. Mm. And one of the ways in which they thought this should be done was to create a juvenile court where the judge would be given tremendous authority to fix these families when uh, either when their children got in trouble or when they were unable to take care of their children. So that was the underlying idea behind the court. And it was a therapeutic idea. It blurred the differences between having a legal court and what they called a social court, which was Mm. intended to fix families, not just adjudicate some legal issue, but actually use the court to make these families different. Wow. So that's, I guess I've heard the term social engineering in the past, and that you know, we it it very much is and was, and and you know, I come from a liberal progressive tradition, and we like to think of ourselves as doing good for society. And we've seen so many examples over the past hundred fifty years or so where it doesn't quite turn out the way we wanted to. And who who is to say what fixing? Is I mean really, and putting these these poor judges in in that position, and it, go ahead. Well, there are two things I I would say. One is, of course, what fixing is is uh, a little bit like your introduction. What is child abuse, and we can certainly talk about that. It's not only that they put the judges in that position. It is that the judges really embrace that position. Mm. They believe that they had the authority, the knowledge, the wisdom to do this difficult job. No one thought it was an easy job, but the judges throughout the history, first of the juvenile court and now more broadly the family court, really did believe, and some of them still do today, that it is their intervention that is going to be most useful. And I think it's also important for us to look at the the basis for bringing families into court, because at the very beginning of the juvenile court, one of the bases was delinquency. That mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. a child actually breaking the law. A second was what was called dependency, which is some combination of poverty and an inability to perhaps do the parenting that you want to do. We may call that today neglect. And then there was another category that originally was considered delinquency, but we now call status offenses. Mm. And those, perhaps for me, are the most important example of how this court should not be. And that is because status offenses are really about young people misbehaving but not breaking the law, and because of their status as being minors, they can still be brought to court. So that's things like running away, being truant, not listening to your parents, maybe doing some underage drinking or drugging, maybe having underage sex, all of which are not crimes, 
their misbehavior that almost all adolescents mm-hmm. do at some point, maybe not all of them, but some of them oh, or one or two of them, but only some of those adolescents find themselves in court for it. And that's usually because parents who have the means will try to deal with it privately. Um, They'll get their child treatment. They'll move their school. They'll be in counseling with with their child to try to figure out why does a child want to run away, right? There are lots of ways in which people with means, with means are able to address their problems, but for poor families and disproportionately families of color, yeah. they don't have those resources. And so they turn to the court at the beginning of the juvenile court, and they still turn to the court today, the parents do, or law enforcement or schools turn to the court and say, we can't take, uh-huh. we don't know what to do with these kids. Uh-huh. So you take care of them. Oh. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> we don't know what to do with them. So you take care of them. Well, that's so much to this issue. And it's something that people, you know, don't think about all, all that much. But uh, it's a it's a very big issue, and it affects so many people, especially as you say, you know, people without means. It, it's one thing if you have means, and I know it's so hard for anybody to believe that there could be uh, differences in how justice is carried out <laughs> based on somehow well, related to having means or not having means. But it's it's uh, well, and that's part of the reason I think that that many people don't understand what a court like family court is about Mm. because with the exception of uh, custody issues, which sometimes, Mm. you know, all the States differ somewhat, but sometimes the custody issues, private custody issues are in family court. Sometimes they're in matrimonial parts of trial courts And those the general public maybe understands a bit about. What they don't understand is that most of the people who are in a family court, which might be juvenile court, domestic relations court, children's court, it has lots of different names. They are predominantly and have always been poor. And they have always been disproportionately people of color or people on the edge. So in the beginning, for example, there were not so many um, black families in the court because the court was predominantly in the north and dealing with and in the Midwest and dealing with these immigrants. The court really didn't get started in the South for a couple of decades. But as soon as it was started in the South, it became disproportionately a court for black families. And then after the great migration Mm -hmm. of of blacks to the north, Then these courts, not surprisingly, became disproportionately courts for black children, later Native American children, and and to some extent other children and families of color. Uh, blind justice, right? Oh, if you just <laughs> if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive, and we're speaking with author and lawyer Jane Spinak about uh, her new book, The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. And it's it's hard to picture. I mean, if anybody listening has been in any court for any reason, you know, just having a friend there, whatever, uh, it can be intimidating. I mean, really. Absolutely. <laughs> and I can just imagine kids, and, you know, they're thrown in there, what is what is the message that they're getting that the schools can't handle them, the parents can't handle them, they're of the, the people who are running the courts are largely, let's face it, people of a white European background. Uh, and what what does that say? And I'm reminded I, I had recently watched part of a 
series on, I don't know, some net, uh, TV platform about uh, mm -hmm. uh, beating the Indian out of Indian girls. Oh, yes. Oh, God. It, it was right. Well, those children for the probably until the the middle of the 20th century, right. because they were federally um, mm. controlled, those mm. children didn't make it to this court because they were they were destroyed by being taken away from their parents and sent to boarding schools mm. to make them into, quote, Americans. Um, but once once the the states began to bring Native American children and families into um, into these proceedings, particularly around um, so-called child maltreatment, of course, they were disproportionately separated from their parents mm -hmm. and disproportionately adopted out of their families, out of their tribes. Um, and that led to the Indian Child Welfare Act, which I can say I, happily the Supreme Court has just upheld, which was... Uh, you know, eye-opening for those of us who are concerned about the way in which this court is going. But upholding the Indian Child Welfare Act is a huge step forward because of the destruction of Indian families that occurred both before this law was put into effect and even to some extent after, but it has much stricter rules than most state rules about when you can take children from their families and either ah. temporarily or permanently. And so having that in place is really a victory um, and, and an unexpected one. Even a blind pig finds a truffle now and then. Exactly, exactly. Well, one of the things um, I was just going to say, when I was growing up in the 1950s, yes, I'm that old, we were taught that our culture, America, is a melting pot. Of course that's not so. It was a nice, nice myth. But the white European culture has always been what the others are supposed to melt into. And as we've seen over and over and over again, the idea of making a real American, it was used during uh, the, the protests against uh, the First World War. People who listen regularly know I'm obsessed with that stuff. But uh, that uh, you have to be a real American. And the way right. that's been used to repress other cultures, and I think hopefully most people are aware that, uh, you know, you don't want to eat just white bread all the time. You need some, I mean, America's about other cultures and cultures coming right. in and adding to to us. And where this fits in, this uh, uh, family court, uh, is, it's, it's, it's an interesting and troubling situation. How did you, it's such a big topic, and you've been at this <laughs> for, for a while. How did you come to write this book? I have been doing it for a while. I have practiced in this court and taught about this court um, for over 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I've been very involved in reform efforts oh. for the court and believed in it. Right. Believe that if we just layered on more due process, if we just applied the law strictly, we would be able to fix the court. Mm -hmm. And when I started writing this book, I really went down the rabbit hole mm. of the history and was quite shocked to find out that the issues we have today are the same issues from the beginning of the court. Not only my clients and their families had to say, but what activists who had have been impacted by this court had to say. Mm. And I listened more carefully and really grew in my appreciation of the destructiveness mm. 
really the destructiveness of this court, mm. not only because of children being punished when they were supposed to get treatment, that certainly has existed the whole time, but how destructive it has been of communities. Mm. And what I found fascinating when I went back to the beginning of the court was how soon after the court was founded, there were scholars and activists and social workers who were saying, you know, we thought this was a good idea, Mm -hmm. but the more we bring more and more children and families into this court, the more we worry that the resources that they need need to be in the community, that the court really doesn't have the capacity to provide to families what families need, which is usually the reason why they're there. Um, We can get to the small number of cases where there is serious concern about parental behavior with children. But even today, that is less than, certainly less than 25%, maybe even less than 20% of the families that find themselves there. The vast number of families are there because of something we now call neglect. Mm. And neglect throughout the history of the court has really been about the lack of, it's been about poverty. It's been about inequality. It's been about the segregation of communities. It's been about communities not having decent schools or health care or housing or today's treatment. And I began to look at reports from the 1910s Mm. and the 1920s and the 1930s. And these reports sound like reports written today that uh, certainly about disproportionality, but also for me so interesting, identifying that if these communities had the resources that they needed, if they were treated fairly, equally to other communities in recreation, in mm-hmm. kindergartens, in nursery schools, in, in employment, in housing, they would not be in family court. Mm. And these reports have continued to be produced up till today. And so this is not new. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're saying, oh, well, today things are disproportionately bad for families of color. Or today we're saying, isn't it interesting that 80% of the reports about families that are reported to these hotlines, those families are either at 200% of the poverty level or less. Mm. So these issues are not different. And we haven't in our society chosen to address what it takes to equalize, to really, you know, as we always say, um, you know, equal the playing field. Well, we haven't done that. And instead, we bring these families into court and blame them for their poverty, Mm. blame them for not having good schools, uh, blame them for all kinds of things. And and then we say, well, we don't have the money to do that. But I just looked at the most recent statistics, which come out from 2019. We spent on the what I call the family regulation system. Some Mm. of my colleagues call the family policing system. The government calls the child welfare system. We spend over $31 billion in local, state, federal funding 
to keep this system going, to keep the reporting going and the investigations of families and pushing them into family court. And $15 billion of that money in 2019 paid for out-of-home placements across the country. So we have the money. Mm. If we took $15 billion and spread it across the country and said, let's make sure everybody has a basic income. Let's make sure schools have the teachers they need. Let's make sure there is community-based mental health treatment, substance use treatment, pediatric care. Let's, let's flood the country with this money that we currently use to investigate families uh-huh. and take their children away. Punish yes. Yes. And so instead, it, you know, so I don't buy the argument we don't have the resources. Oh we do. We mm-hmm. don't have the will to change the way we're doing things. And I found a series of reports in 1990. So these are official reports by the U.S., the United States Advisory Board on Abuse and Neglect Hmm. that was created as part of the reauthorization of one of the federal laws establishing the child protective system. And the advisory board issued an emergency report in 1990, which said our system is a disaster. We report instead of supporting families. We need to dismantle the system we have now. We need to create community-based, neighborhood-based supports for all families because the system we have in place now has failed. It has just failed. It hasn't kept children safe. It hasn't supported families. And we need to do something different. And unfortunately, when the Clinton administration came in, they didn't say, okay, here's a really smart way of doing things differently, along with, uh, you know, reforming welfare as we know it, Mm -hmm. which was Mm -hmm. its own disaster. Absolutely. The Clinton administration, with the support of Congress, created what's called the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which was a federal funding mandate that said to states, you need to speed up your work with families because we have too many children in foster care. But even though the law requires reunification to be the first goal when you are taking children from their parents, in fact, the financial rewards to the states and localities was through terminating parental rights and getting children adopted. There were bonuses. You didn't get a bonus for returning children safely to their parents. You got a bonus for terminating parental rights and getting the children adopted. And what this led to was obviously a decrease in the number of children who went home but also to this skewed system of trying to get children adopted by someone else, mostly by strangers. And one of the long-term results, and these were often the young people that my program represented when I was teaching at Columbia, is that we now have approximately 20,000 young people a year aging out of foster care right with no legal family Ugh. no legal family they don't have a legal birth family because those rights were terminated and they don't have a legal adoptive family they have lived in foster care yes. and now they're aging out and and a lot of the efforts right now that everyone within the government thinks is 
terrific and I don't <laughs> is is OK. So we're going to help these young people. We're going to extend the time they can stay in foster care so they can finish school. We're going to help them get housing when they age out. We're going to help them um, with some basic income when they age out. But these are all back end solutions. Mm. And so uh, do I object to that because I, I don't want these young people to have those things? No, of course not. I want them to have those things. What I want is that they shouldn't need to have those things. What they should have gotten was help when they were connected to their families. You know, I rarely had a client who didn't want to go home to their families. And I rarely represented parents who didn't want their children home. But the supports were not there for that to happen. And even today, when there has been somewhat more enlightenment about prevention, only 14% of the money that is spent of that $31 billion is for prevention, 14%. All the rest is for bringing these families and children into court and ultimately having to support them because, you know, they have been destroyed, basically. Mm. Wow, this is heavy. I know, it's so depressing. Well, <laughs> doing this show for as long as I have, <laughs> there's a lot of depressing You're used to depressing topics. Oh, my goodness, yes. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive, and we're not giving up on that. Uh, our guest today is right. uh, Jane Spinak, who's got a new book coming out, The End of Family Court. How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. And that's some pretty shocking stuff. And you talk about community and how there's so many examples in so many cases. I mean, you look at the, the drug issue. I mean, we had uh, prohibition in the 1920s. Yeah, that worked real well. Right. And, and drug, yeah. drug prohibition uh, and, you know, using law enforcement. That worked well, too. Oh, right? yeah. Law enforcement. <laughs> uh, community support. And it seems like the system is set up to not have community support. That, you know, right. if you can buy your way out of the community and get into, you know, I mean, people want to move to a town with, uh, you know, a good school system, et cetera, et cetera, and good uh, municipal services. Uh, but a lot of people can't do that. And, exactly. and to blame them and to punish these. And, and if there's some community support, it takes a village, as somebody said. Yes, <laughs> right. it does take a village. And we're just not doing that. And the money that you're talking about. And you talk about money. It's funny how money sometimes corrupts things <clears throat> every now and mm -hmm. then. <laughs> how is it, it, it seems like it's a profitable industry in processing cases alleging child neglect and abuse. It is profitable. It is a middle class works program. Uh. When I did take a leave from teaching and I went back to run the Juvenile Rights Division at Legal Aid in the 1990s. And I used to, and we represented the children either in the delinquency proceedings or in the child welfare family regulation proceedings. And I used to say to the staff, what we want to do is put ourselves out of business. Mm -hmm. We need to do the best possible representation we can for those families and children who are going to be in court, but we should be doing everything we can to stop the need for families to be in this court. Right. And I think when I first began writing this book, I couldn't imagine what abolition actually looked like. Mm -hmm. And over the experience of writing it, I realized that there are ways to shrink and end this court that would change the way in which we respond to families. And mm. so 
many of my colleagues call this non-reformist reforms. Mm. That is reforms that don't strengthen the system, Mm. like putting more judges into the system, Mm -hmm. which is always the reform that everyone says we need. Mm -hmm. We always need more judges. Mm -hmm. So not putting more judges and instead thinking about how do we, what can be taken out and done elsewhere. For me, the most, the easiest thing to imagine is to eliminate status offense jurisdiction. So this is the jurisdiction where we bring kids into court because they're misbehaving. All courts are basically now places of combat, pretty much by definition, one side fighting the other. It's not about getting to the truth or to the best solutions. Uh, And we're talking about family courts. And so how does that make it even worse? How does does the fact that it's a family court uh, make it uh, even less of a decent place to uh, make justice? Well, it's ironic because the reforms that many people are talking about are actually to add more due process to the court, which, of course, does uh, suggest that it will become more adversarial. I'm not sure it will, in fact, become more adversarial. I think that certainly with stricter standards of due process, families are much more likely to get more fairness. And there may, in fact, be less discretion on the part of the judge or of a prosecutor or a child protective agency because good representation would limit and challenge what is being said Uh about parents, for example. And we know in New York where we have in the past 20 years developed institutional representation for parents, and we already had it for children. And this means that it is an organization set up specifically to represent parents in these types of proceedings. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, And by challenging the allegations that CPS often brings, cases are being dismissed. Children are being held in foster care for shorter periods of time. The, The research so far has said that these children not going into foster care or being returned sooner are still well within the realm of safety for all children. Mm. So, so, so some improvements are being made. Well, yes, but this is, this is a small step because it's limited to some jurisdictions. And there are Mm. many jurisdictions where there is still very little due process. Mm I I also think one of my goals is to see how we can shrink the court so that the only kinds of cases that uh-huh. actually need to be adjudicated will get the full panoply of due process rights. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many cases now, it's very difficult or a locality or a state to spend enough money to make sure excellent representation is going on Uh because there are hundreds of thousands of cases, but there don't have to be. Mm -hmm. There really is, you know, we know enough, and I've talked about that earlier, that, that most of the families who find themselves there and many of the youth who find themselves there really don't belong. And so if they're not in the court, then the court can really uh-huh. 
focus on the people who um, have serious allegations and who need serious representation or other due process rights. And we need courts because, let's face it, there is crime. And But so many of these cases, that, as you say, are, are just jamming up the courts. Uh, kids don't always behave like we so-called adults would like them to behave. There are truman, truants and runaways. Uh, what's the approach now, and what would work better? Do those cases end up in family courts as well? Well, unfortunately, they do, and those cases are perhaps the ones that most clearly represent the treatment, benevolent uh founding of this court that is to to use the court to somehow get these young people to behave but the truth of the matter is that all adolescents misbehave sure. and only some of them get caught right and the ones who get caught are more likely to be the ones who are being surveyed by public systems, including law enforcement. But I think it's really important also to recognize that children who break the law, youth who break the law, because I actually think that the age of juvenile responsibility should be 14, which is the international standard, they need to be able to to have their case litigated in court with all the due process rights uh, sure. they should have. The rest of the youth who find themselves in court for misbehaving are called status offenders. Oh, I was going to ask which, about that. Yes, which means that their misbehavior is criminalized only because they're under 18. So truancy, running away, underage drinking, not listening mm -hmm. to your parents, maybe having underage sex. These are all, these would not be crimes if you were an adult, but they are, they are called status offenses mm. and you can be prosecuted for them and even locked up, though that has diminished substantially for misbehaving like all children or youth, adolescents, let's call them, misbehave. Mm -hmm. It's part of becoming more independent, you know, testing limits. We've, I certainly did it as an adolescent. I think most people do it as an adolescent. Of course. But most people aren't brought to court for it. And the good news is that since... 2000, when there were about 200,000 of these youth brought to court nationwide, that number most recently has dropped to below 100,000. So in the 90s somewhere. This is mostly because courts are trying to divert these young people out of the system. That's a good thing. Yeah. But if you still allow law enforcement or a school or even parents to bring children to court for misbehaving but not breaking the law, that's always a backup. And mm. the recommendations for over a half a century is let's just eliminate this jurisdiction. Let's provide young people with activities and supports and resources in the community and let's make let's encourage them to voluntarily participate without holding uh -huh. over their heads that if they don't they could find themselves in court so just eliminating this jurisdiction would go a long way toward recognizing that these youth are like any other youth, except they got caught. Mm, except they got caught. <laughs> oh, that's the thing. And uh, people with a great deal of money, I understand uh, even uh, Princess Diana said, oh, do whatever you want, but just don't get caught. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, 
And even when young people with means do get caught, their parents are able to say, you know, I'll send him to treatment, I'll send him to boarding school, I'll make sure he's in after school programs. And so they're just they never have to penetrate into this system. And the problem with penetration in is not only the punishment that occurs at the beginning, Young people are more likely to go deeper into the juvenile legal system mm-hmm. if they have been arrested for PIN's case. The PIN, they're, they're called status offenses, but uh, some states, they're persons in need of supervision, juveniles in need of supervision. That's, that's how they're called. What a label. What a label. Jeez, yeah. when you get that label as a kid, that's me. That's my label. I'm a person in need of... of uh, supervision. Uh. Yes, and actually sociologists who are labeling theorists have said this since since the 1970s. Yeah. They've said if you put this label on a young person whether it's a delinquent or a status offender, they're going to think that's who they are even if they're not. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our penal system, our justice system, is a big part of the problem and opportunity as well. And in general, when I think about, you know, the application of justice, you think about the word penitentiary, like somebody's going to do penitence? I mm-hmm. I mean, that's such a medieval word, and especially for kids. Our guest today is uh, author uh, Jane Spinak who uh, has written a new book, The End, The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families, NYU Press, and it's coming out, well, right now. And uh, it's, it's a sort of a radical idea of advocating for the abolition of the family court system of surveillance, punishment, and family policing, and labeling, and replacing it with meaningful community-developed and community-based solutions, what would that look like? And how realistic is that? What can communities do, especially with regard to policing, libraries, public playgrounds, other care centers? What is an alternative? Please, what are some of the concrete steps to, to accomplish what you call for? Sure. Well, it's... Of course, first a recognition that the system as it is, is broken and destructive and has not helped the families it was intended to help. The second is to recognize that we spend an enormous amount of money, actually billions of dollars, taking children out of their families, out of their communities, and putting them into various types of out-of-home care, whether it's foster care or or reform schools or psychiatric institutions that have not proven to make whatever problems these families and children face to to actually solve them. So there's money. Everyone thinks Mm -hmm. there's not money. But if you took that money and you shifted it over to communities and you worked with community ideas about what would really help the community, whether it's childcare or readily access mental health care or substance use care or after school programs or multi-service libraries or schools, All of these have been piloted in different places around the country with very good results that communities feel more responsible as a whole Uh for all their families. And this was a recommendation made in the 1990s by the U.S. government's um, the United States Advisory Board on Abuse and Neglect, which is a government fund federal government funded board and they said this in the early 1990s that we should stop 
thinking that we've done our responsibility by picking up the phone and reporting something uh, like, oh, we're worried about this child. They don't seem to have mm. clean clothes or we're worried about what's going on in this family because sometimes we think the children are left alone. Okay, these are concerns, yes. but they've turned into investigations that don't result in really helping the families. And what the advisory board said all those years ago is, can we instead figure out how to support families? And they, there have been several pilot programs, Strong Families, Strong Communities, mm. where everyone is engaged over time businesses, the fire department, the police department, the library, the school, local volunteers like who are doctors who are willing to run a pediatric group for parents to just talk about useful things that would help them. I mean, it's it's a it touches on everything. But what it mostly does is say to every community, all our children matter. All our families matter. So instead of thinking that by reporting you're doing something good, mm. understand you're not. And what you need to do is to join in on supporting families. There was one story of a business owner who happened to have an empty storefront. So he created a toy library for the community. The fire department turned over the part of the fire department for activities for kids in the afternoon. So there are, there are common sense proposals that are not imposed, but, but developed uh. out of what communities actually need. And we just haven't, haven't consistently tried to do this. Ironically, soon after the juvenile court, which is now still in some places called juvenile court, mm -hmm. children's court, family court, they're all, you know, touching on the same family issues. But soon after it was started, at the beginning of the 20th century, many scholars and activists and, and even traditional reformers started saying, we're taking too many families into the court. These things that families need belong in the community. And if you go through the history of the court, as I have, you find every decade the same message. You know, we've taken too many families into court. And what we really need to do is to support them in their communities. And that's especially true now because the number of children and families that find themselves in the court and then ultimately many of the families being separated and ultimately destroyed through uh, termination of parental rights or children going deeper into the juvenile legal system. No one has said that this has made these families, quote, better. Right. In fact, most of the evidence is that while any individual family might be better off overall, it has it has just been a failed system. And one of the statistics that is shocking to me is that every year about 20,000 young people who are in foster care age out with no legal family. Right. They don't have their birth family because yeah. their parents' rights were terminated and they don't have an adoptive family. So they have no legal family. Many of them go back to their original families and connect with relatives and that's fine. But, but to realize as a young person, 18, 19, 20, that, that the state has made you a legal orphan yeah. is just a 
terrible, terrible thing. And to live with that label, nobody wants to be labeled. And, and for a kid, especially a teenager, to, to have to live with that label, who does that Fine. help? Who does that help? <laughs> uh, and you sound somewhat optimistic, I have to say. I mean, it's a big deal to, you know, to actually abolish the family court, but it sounds like people are starting to get it. And I can see that what you're talking about would have appealed not just to us traditional democratic liberals, but to, you know, conservatives as well who, you know, talk Absolutely. about family values. Absolutely. And also, I think it's very important, and this certainly is in the in the discussions currently is how do we do this through what are called non-reformist reforms? Mm. That is reforms to the system that don't strengthen it, but actually shrink it. Mm. So these, the status offenses I talked about earlier sure. are a perfect example, right? We just take that out of court. Nobody likes those cases. I have never met a judge who's been happy to have to yeah. deal with a status offense case. Sure. So it's not like they're popular. <laughs> so, okay, get rid of them. Put put the resources we used to do for when the kids were in court or somehow separated right. from their families. Put it into the community. And so that's a non-reformist reform. Changing from mandated reporting for child protection to voluntary reporting. What this would mean is that, of course, uh, a doctor, a teacher, a neighbor could report their concerns, but they're not mandated to uh, do it. Uh -huh. And the reason why that's so important is that many parents are afraid oh, sure. of confiding in a doctor or confiding in a teacher or a social worker because these are all mandated reporters. They are supposed to call up CPS. So what you get on uh, is women who are not going to prenatal care because they're afraid mm. to discuss how they want to stop, let's say, smoking marijuana during their pregnancy. But they're afraid to go talk to the doctor because they know doctors are mm -hmm. mandated reporters. Mm. And, and because the professionals who are know that there's liability for not reporting. Right. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. So if we stopped a system of mandated reporting, but allowed people who were really concerned about the safety, the real safety of a child, right. not, oh, this parent needs after school care, Okay, you you don't need to report about that. You need to help the help. parent <laughs> access after school care. But if a children is if a child is really either at, at serious risk or has been physically right. or sexually abused or has somehow, you know, been starved by a parent. Of course, sure. you should have a way in which to Human report nature. that. Absolutely. But you don't need a mandated <laughs> reporting system that currently in our country, and I can't remember if I said this earlier in our interview, but currently... A third of the children in this country, by the time they reach the age of 18, will have had a report on them, mm. and half mm. the black children. Mm. That's a big this part is of it. not because this is not because the vast majority of those children are at risk. It's because we've set up this system of reporting where most of the cases end up screened out mm. because they aren't really impacting the safety of this child. But we have this enormous apparatus that allows it to continue. We could stop that. We could That's stop that. 
Right. And that's I mean, some we, things we could just stop. <laughs> so wouldn't that be nice? And it's been a fascinating discussion, and it, it's an important area that rarely get look, gets looked at. The book is called The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. Jane Spinak, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Doing good work. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. And thank you for your interest in this often difficult topic. They're taking the children away. Because they said she's not a good mother. They're taking her children away. Because of the things that they heard she had done. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.